We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. I am Seth, and I thought I'd do a little bit more on the durables. We spent uh, the first couple parts of this show, first couple hours, uh, doing the um, the more uh, quotidian. <laughs> you like that word, David? Quotidian. So, happy February 1st. Again, the word or name February comes from the Latin februarius, which means purification, actually, or expiation as opposed to January, which is based on the god Janus who looked forward and backward, we are at the place in time where having, I guess, looked back enough, we are now to look forward and go forward, uh, having uh, purified or going through the purification of ourselves. Perhaps if I could invoke a religious concept that might be applicable here, we take the message of looking at our past problems or sins and hopefully going forth to sin no more. Right, David? which takes us to February being Black History Month. I've received several emails from several organizations today saying, interestingly, the exact same thing in the subject line, which is Black History is American History. And, in fact, Karen Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, the White House press secretary, um, opened her press conference uh, with that line when asked a question about Black History Month. So somehow this theme is making the rounds. And... Black history is American history is right. It most certainly is. What I dislike is the distortion and revision of both, especially the genus of the species, which is American history. And that is the crux of our problem right now. And the 1619 Project is Exhibit A. The New York Times sponsored this project that was put together by a journalism student, Nicole Hannah-Jones. No, she is not a history professor. She does not have a doctorate in any field. She is a journalist and yet has sought to and succeeded in a great many ways in reshaping the teaching of American history and errantly. Beyond her getting the New York Times to propagate her work, she now has a 1619 series on the video streaming service Hulu, which comes to us right now at the beginning or commencement of Black History Month, the 16. 19 version of history now debuting on Hulu. A good time to market such a production, I suppose. Books and even liberal historians, well-credentialed liberal historians, historians of the left, have written extensively on her distortions of American history. To no matter, evidently. As they used to say, the cause is all. The philosophers have hitherto interpreted the world, Karl Marx wrote. The point is, however, to change it, he said. History, one might say to the neo-Marxists, was nothing more than an opiate. You defeat your opponent's arguments by trampling on your opponents and by treating them with contempt or by simply changing or altering history. The sad thing is the Hulu series, just like the 1619 curriculum, just like Howard Zinn's rendering of American history, will dominate more minds than the actual history or our actual history. 
Let us start with where I think our party needs to stand straight and courageously, embracing our affinity for liberation and not succumbing to the left democratic narrative that we are the party of oppression. It's easy to be cowed, but we should not be. And it's easy to think the Democratic Party and the left is the friend of black history in America or history in America or America. But it is wrong, think. There's a reason. After all, Black History Month was not created by Woodrow Wilson. He was busy showing a KKK-sponsored inspired documentary at the White House or FDR or Truman or Kennedy or Johnson, all Democratic presidents or all of the Democratic presidents since the beginning of two centuries ago, at least until Jimmy Carter. No, Black History Month came from Richard Nixon's vice president, Coombs' successor, Gerald Ford, a Republican. In his proclamation declaring it in 1976, Gerald Ford said this, quote, freedom and the recognition of individual rights are what our revolution was all about. They were ideals that inspired our fight for independence, ideals that we have been striving to live up to ever since. Yet it took many years before ideals became a reality for black citizens. He went on, Gerald Ford, quote, The last quarter century has finally witnessed significant strides in the full integration of black people into every area of national life. In celebrating Black History Month, we can take satisfaction from this recent progress and the realization of the ideals envisioned by our founding fathers. But even more than this, we can seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. I so urge my fellow citizens to join me in tribute to Black History Month and the message of courage and perseverance it brings to all of us. Close quote. That was Gerald Ford. Good and right. And of course, the new dispensation, the 1619 Project, is directly anathematized to all this, trying to erase and dissolve the whole purpose of the bicentennial upon which Gerald Ford said that in 1976, trying to erase and dissolve the notion of why it was a bicentennial, i.e. 1776, the very thing that gives us the appellation for this month in the Hulu series, and make the year 1619 our benchmark origin story, a story based on immiseration and enslavement, not freedom and equality, which is what 1776 was, and why we began Black History Month in this country in that year and not, say, 1919, when Woodrow Wilson was president, which would have been a centennial anniversary of the 1619 Project. Woodrow Wilson, the founder of progressivism in America, would want nothing to do with such an idea, I'm sure. He, after all, segregated the federal workforce, which was integrated by the time he became president. The story of perverting our history is very much found and explained by Nicole Hannah-Jones herself. In an autobiographical essay she wrote for her 1619 project, she tells the story of her father, who was an Army veteran and flew the American flag proudly and with exquisite attention to the details and rules of flying that flag. In their front yard, it was flown, and when it was tattered, he would replace it. Until, until, until one day, his daughter, Nicole, came home and said to him that she learned in school that, in her words, quote, the flag isn't really ours, close quote. And she convinced him to stop flying, flying it. 
So you have an African American man who served in, our, <clears throat> excuse me, who served in our army, fighting for this country, in a time that clearly would have been more segregated or racist than when his daughter was in school. He was proud of this country and its flag. Years later, after the Civil Rights Act, his daughter, being born, lectures him that what she learned in school about this country was smarter and better than what he knew and experienced in his life story in this country in, again, what would have been a more segregated or even more racist America. This is what our education system has done, at least when it comes to the story of America and race. And it is what it is handed to those who, as Marx taught, the purpose of history was not to understand it, but change it. Anti-Americanism is the cause, not history and not understanding. And that anti-Americanism, under serious scrutiny or even common experience, is based on fallacious and revisionist history. I suppose if you can change a child's sex for ideological reasons and reasoning, you can change a nation's history. All of it is a supersession of nature. A better understanding of all this comes to us from Adam B. Coleman. He is the author of a book called Black Victim to Black Victor. He writes the following in a current Newsweek essay, quote, For many black Americans, being black is important to us. It's something we're proud of. We don't want it to be erased from the conversation. And conservatives insisting that we erase the uniqueness of the black experience and subsume it under a more generic view of America can feel like purposefully discounting what's important to us. That's my message to conservatives at the start of this Black History Month. In our zealousness to do the opposite of what the left is advocating, let us not create results contrary to what we desire, which is more inclusion and a more inclusive nation and a more inclusive right. He goes on, quote, It's time to rescue Black History Month from the woke left, a mission doubly important given the Republican roots of the commemoration, which was started as history as a week, History Week in 1926, by Carter Woodson, and was purposefully timed to coincide with the birthdays of Republican President Abraham Lincoln, signer of the Emancipation Proclamation, and Frederick Douglass, a former slave, social reformer, and loyal Republican. In other words, Black History Week began as a way of highlighting historically significant Republican figures who contributed to the betterment of black Americans and was later expanded by a Republican president to decrease the deficiency of education surrounding our accomplishments and contributions. The black American story is filled with examples of triumphing against the odds, overcoming generational strife, and making tragic moments the impetus for us to change. Close quote. And you know what? That's the story of most Americans, too, which is why Morgan Freeman, the actor, told Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes in 2005 that black history is, to go back to the beginning, American history. It certainly is. And more importantly, as Abraham Lincoln once put it, it's all our land. And the more we distort its story, rewrite it and revise it for ideological purposes, we will end up with less freedom and less equality. That, after all, is the honest epitaph of every society that followed the man who said the purpose of philosophy and history is not to understand it, but to change it. This is why I think the wars over American history are so important, and why C.S. Lewis put it in his too aptly titled Abolition of Man, that, quote, by starving the sensibility of our pupils, 
We only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes, close quote. Because of lousy and distorted and ugly revisionism of our story, boy, a lot of propagandists are winning today. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. You know, some of that rendering that I just did in that monologue in the previous hour reminded me to ask you, David, of it's hard to see here, but if I can just espy it out closely enough, who's the who's the political pin you have on your chest today? I'm for Dick Nixon. What year would that have been? Well, since the press gave Nixon a beating most of his political career, it yeah. could be from a few of them. Yeah. It's probably uh, 1960. Yeah. Um, Interesting story about the Republican Party and African-Americans or the black vote with Richard Nixon. One of the things that um, is little known about Richard Nixon is how beloved he was by the black community. Um, It was a real battle uh, as to who would secure uh, the greater proportion of the black vote in 1960 when he ran against uh, John Kennedy. Uh, Slightly... um, uncomfortable tale, a piece of history about Dick Nixon in the previous decade, in the 1950s, when he was uh, serving as Dwight Eisenhower's vice president, um, there was starting to be some concern in certain Republican circles, kind of that country club Republican circle that existed that um, we we sometimes lament around here, but in those days was really worth lamenting. Um, Dick Nixon was so beloved by the uh, black community that they were worried in some of the Eisenhower circles that it would perhaps give too much of a negative image to the Eisenhower reelection, believe it or not, in a kind of perverted way. Oh, I've heard that. And there you was have. a movement to try to kick him off there the was, Exactly. Very few know this, but there was a small effort. I'm glad it failed because it came from a bad place, if you will. Uh, there was a small effort in, uh, it would have been what, the election of 1956, right? 56. 1956, there was a small effort to remove Richard Nixon from the ticket, and it was based on, you know, the affinity the black community had for him. It's not the happiest tale about the Republican Party in those days, or at least a certain part of it that was surrounding Eisenhower. But, uh, yeah, Richard Nixon, uh, we, we kind of tend to remember him more for, you know, what we learned from the Watergate tapes and, and his rough tongue, to say the least. Um, but um, he was uh, very close with uh, the black community. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Martin Luther King's father, Martin Luther King Sr., and he had a very good relationship. Um, but... Uh, Richard Nixon is a complicated figure. We can talk American history on him for just a moment, and I'll return to the party and in, in, in African-American history in a moment. He's a complicated figure. William Buckley said he was the Aztec calendar stone of the 20th century, <laughs> which is to say, you know, one of the most indecipherable people uh, of the 20th century. He, um, he probably created the most without himself ever saying it, probably created the most currently still used famous phrase, which is Nixon to China, because he was in uh, the 1940s, you know, known as the great anti-communist. That's where he built his career. Yes, with the Hiss case. Yes, with the Hiss case, which brought us Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers was the star witness against Alger Hiss, 
And that's, of course, what gave us that great book of the 20th century and still even today, Whitaker Chambers' uh, political autobiography called Witness, which we quote from time to time. But he was such an anti-communist in his campaigns in California against Helen Douglas and and others. Um earned him, you know, the, the notion of, of really being the more the more intellectual, if you will, maybe even in some respects the more responsible Joe McCarthy. So when he uh, met with and opened up negotiations with uh, Mao Zedong's China, that's where that phrase comes from, Nixon to China, the person you least thought would do it, or alternatively, the person who had the credibility to do it because he was known, his anti-communist bona fides, his anti-communist credentials were so strong in the first place that we could trust Richard Nixon. Not everyone did, not in our movement anyway. Bill Buckley, again, he had put together something known as the Committee of One Million, I believe it was called, and they took out ads, took out ads against Richard Nixon's uh, opening and normalizing of relations with uh, with China, uh, which reminds me of that great story about William Buckley becoming part of a delegation to the United Nations in the Nixon administration. Have I told this story before? It's one of my favorites. No, I don't know. Do you know it? Uh, Well, if you you don't know it, it's worth retelling. Uh, There was a thought to, you know, Richard Nixon had become, he had this, this, this notion that you, 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 you campaign right and govern left. And he certainly did. He campaigned and made the image of himself as a very conservative man. But his governing was uh, pretty liberal, pretty li- maybe, you know, as liberal a Republican as, as, as ever served in the White House. You think about some of the things we still have that are legatees of his liberalism, uh, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, EPA. or the EPA, yes, the EPA, affirmative action. Affirmative action really started on Nixon's watch, at least in earnest. And, of course, he gave us uh, at least two of the justices that created – yeah, at least two of the Supreme Court justices that gave us Roe v. Wade. So, you know, his administration really was much more liberal than people thought. But in any way, in any rate, when he was making – he and Kissinger were making overtures to China and there was an effort to try and, you know, shall we say, bring in or maybe co-opt the right – uh, they decided to uh, nominate uh, William Buckley, the Nixon administration did, to a, to a committee at the United Nations. And I believe it was Haldeman, the chief of staff at the time, I believe it was Haldeman, who called, Richard, uh, who called William Buckley and asked him uh, if he would meet with the president and discuss this appointment. And then he said, is there anything um, in your background, uh, Mr. Buckley, that would embarrass the president? And Mr. Buckley said... No, but there's an awful lot in Richard Nixon's that embarrasses me. <laughs> Pretty funny, huh? Oh, that kind of mind. And I guess in a way the credibility to um, to utter it. All right. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. As long as we're talking about uh, Black History Month and black history and the Republican Party and the conservative movement, um, it, it's probably a good time to also revisit the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and why it is and how it became the case that the Republican Party lost the black vote. 
uh, lost the African-American vote. I, I'll use the terms interchangeably. I don't mean anything by it. I just, out of respect, will use the term that people most most wish. Uh, I, I, I think they're interchangeable um, by the various communities. So I don't mean anything different other than to be respectful in, in using both terms, black and African-American. But Republicans up until about 1960 were getting the majority of the black vote. And for 100 years, really, from uh, the end of the Civil War forward, uh, as we put it in our history book, The Last Best Hope, America, The Last Best Hope, if you were a black American or an African-American seeking uh, help in a political party, it was the Republican Party you would go to and certainly vote for and uh, campaign for. Um, That changed uh, dramatically in 1964 and and has never been recovered since. Um, Al Felsenberg, the historian of record here, um, talks about what happened in 1964, and that was the year of the Civil Rights Bill. And the leading Republican nominee for the presidency of the United States for the Republican Party was Barry Goldwater, and he opposed the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, But he didn't do it for racial or racist reasons. He did it because he didn't – out of libertarian principle, out of libertarian concern. He didn't think it was government's role to tell – private industry, what they could and could not do. His record on civil rights was already well established, at least to those who knew him in Arizona. He desegregated desegregated the Air National Guard here. He desegregated uh, Sky Harbor. I've always liked the idea that Terminal 4 is named after him, and I thought in part maybe that was because of his efforts. Um, We're about uh, desegregating the airport here. So the myth is that Goldwater's anti-civil rights fo- vote was rooted in racism, and it was just more of a libertarian thing than anything else. He opposed sections of the bill that denied privacy, uh, private businesses the right to, to, to deny service to any person for any reason. Um, another myth is that Goldwater represented the entire party's position on civil rights, and that's not true either. 27 of the 31 Republican senators who supported the bill in 1964, 27 of the 31 other Republican senators supported the bill, 21 Democrats in the United States Senate in 1964 voted against it. In other words, a higher proportion of Republicans in the Senate voted for the Civil Rights Act than Democrats. And you may know some of the names of those Democrats who voted against the Civil Rights Act. Sam Irvin, who would become the star of the Watergate hearings. Uh, J. William Fulbright. Uh, Many people know of the Fulbright scholarships, and he certainly was someone who William Clinton claimed was one of his heroes. Robert Byrd, uh, who was known as, you know, the constitutional authority of uh, the United States Senate, also a member of the KKK. Albert Gore, father of uh, the former vice president. Um, These were the leading voices against the Civil Rights Act in 1964. While, you know, such quote unquote right wing Neanderthals of that time, like Karl Mundt or Karl Curtis or Roman Ruska, they voted for it. The most eloquent, eloquent speech uh, on behalf of the Civil Rights Act in the Senate came from Senator Everett Dirksen, 
uh, over whom a Senate building is now named, he quoted uh, Victor Hugo in saying, nothing is so powerful as an idea whose time has come. The story was similar in the House of Representatives. Now, understandably, liberal historians and activists have downplayed the role of Republicans in breaking Democratic filibusters and securing the final passage. Um, And maybe now, maybe now, maybe now, things are changing a little bit. Donald Trump did an awful lot to get the African-American vote, and we'll see what this Republican Party can do to further push it along. It's, um, it's, it's, It's a faulty notion of history, though, to think that it was because of Barry Goldwater's racism that the Republican Party lost the black vote. It wasn't. It was libertarianism, certainly a better notion and ethos of opposing the Civil Rights Act than what the Democrats' views were in opposing it, which was rooted in segregation and racism. Okay, I'm Seth. We'll be right back. A lot of you have heard me talking about why refi for a while now, and if you do have questions uh, about uh, their successes and what they have been able to do for a lot of you in the Phoenix area who have invested with them, they invite you to call them at 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. They're happy to put you in touch with any number of satisfied customers who have happily invested and uh, seen great returns with them. Think about your IRA for a moment. Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or Joe Biden's economy? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax deferred? That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com, or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. Back to history and uh, African-American or Black History Month. Um, One of the people that I think a lot of us would do well to study all over again would be Frederick Douglass. He's fallen out um, and been uh, curtailed and edited down in our history books. And I can understand why. The reasons are ideological. Um, He had a deep and abiding love of our founding, like Martin Luther King, he spoke of our founding documents as liberty documents, as magnificent, and that goes against the grain of what the left is um, trying to teach about our founding being rotten to its core, or really steeped in not freedom, steeped not in equality. Um, Frederick Douglass, interesting life. Just the life of Douglas is a fantastic study in life. What a man. Um, in, in so many stories, we do our best in portraying a lot of that in America, the last best. Oh, one of my favorite things of his is a little-known pamphlet that he put out in 1872 uh, in an effort to um, campaign for the re-election of Ulysses S. Grant. He loved Ulysses S. Grant. He... He um, he was being encouraged to run on a third party, Frederick Douglass, for the presidency, and he turned it down so as to spend all his time campaigning for Ulysses S. Grant. 
So he put a um, he put a pamphlet together that was directed to the black churches, and it was to address the black churches. Of course, one's thinking politics and in the church. Are we allowed to do that? Well, yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. And uh, he 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 put out a, a booklet called U.S. Grant, parlance of the time. Forgive me. U.S. Grant and the Colored People. That was the name of the booklet he put together. It's about eight pages. And um, it's a tremendous read. And um, if I can give you a little bit bit from it, he wrote, There are many dissemblers and falsifiers of the Greeley Party in the South who are seeking the control of black voters. Greeley was Horace Greeley, who who was a uh, radical, shall we say. Uh, seeking the control of the black uh, radical um, in the sense of uh, going farther, wanting to go farther than Lincoln and Douglas and Grant. Uh, there are many falsifiers of the Greeley Party in the South who are seeking the control of the black voters by declaring to them that President Grant is not and never has been a faithful and sincere friend of my race. President Grant's course from the time he drew the sword in defense of the old Union in the Valley of the, the Mississippi till he sheathed it at Appomattox. And thence to this day in his reconstruction policy and his war upon the Ku Klux Klan is without a deed or word to justify such an accusation. I have often, Douglas continues, I have often been called upon to reconcile my exalted opinion of President Grant with the fact that I failed to be invited with the commissioners of inquiry to Santo Domingo to dine with the president at the White House. I have two answers to those who inquire of me on this point. First, The failure of the president to invite me could not have been because my personal preference, my personal presence on account of color would have been disagreeable to him, for he never withheld any social courtesy to other black men like General Tate, the minister plenipotentiary from the Republic of Haiti, Haiti, a man of my own complexion. It is besides impossible that color is the explanation of the omission to invite me, because the gentleman whom he did invite had dined with me daily during 10 weeks of an American ship under an American flag and in presence of representatives of the leading presses of the United States, and this doubtless by the president's special direction. It is further obvious that color had nothing to do with the omission, because other gentlemen accompanying the expedition to Santo Domingo, equally with myself, though white, failed to receive an invitation to dine at the White House. My second answer is that my devotion to General Grant rests upon high and broad public grounds and not upon personal favor. I see in him the vigilant, firm, impartial, and wise protector of my race from all the malign reactionary social and political elements that would whelm them in destruction. He is the rock-bound coast against the angry, and gnawing waves of a storm-tossed ocean, saying, Thus far only shalt thou come. With his strong right arm, he gave you the vote, and I ask you to give it to him. Frederick Douglass on Ulysses S. Grant. What a shame that in 2020, a group of vigilantes tore down a statue of President Grant in San Francisco just as it was a shame that they tried to rename a school that was named after Abraham Lincoln. Frederick Douglass said of Abraham Lincoln, you know what he said of, do you know what he said of Abraham Lincoln? The first white man I met who did not make me feel like a man of another race. Pretty, pretty interesting, that history. 
You getting that in your eighth grade books? You getting that in your twelfth grade? You getting that anywhere in school? Well, there are good history books. Um, I recommend America: The Last Best Hope. There are a few others, of course. Wilfred McClay's is a great one. But um, when you think about the importance of the history wars, they're important because it's the history of our story, which really is the second greatest story ever told. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Much appreciated. We'd take none of you, uh, none of it for granted. It means a lot to us that you'd let us um, into your cars and hearts and bedrooms and wherever you listen to us, kitchens, brains, souls. Uh, it's a real privilege to be able to do this with you. So thank you. Um, yeah, you want to study? Is it, you want to you know, close, close with a little story about Frederick Douglass and what a man he was? Um, there was Jim Crow all over the place in America. Uh, there was a moment where Frederick Douglass created a national stir when he refused to leave his seat in a first-class railroad car in, of all places, Massachusetts. By the way, I will tell you, of all the places I've lived, Massachusetts seemed to be, in my life, the most racially segregated. You think of it as this great liberal great liberal state. I've lived in two southern states and California and Arizona, and I will tell you, it was I, I didn't feel more segregation in any place other than Massachusetts. Anyway, um, Douglas challenged the enraged white conductor to give him one good reason why he should leave his first class seat. And the conductor said, because you are black, as he summoned several muscular stevedores to eject the famous abolitionist. Snake out the damn N-word, the conductor yelled. Douglas, who had fought and floored a vicious slave breaker on Maryland's eastern shore, grabbed his seat tightly. By the time he was finally put off on the station platform, he had the seat he had paid for still in his powerful hands. He took the seat off the train. He had wrenched it from its mount. They should have at least let me travel halfway Douglas later told an English uh, audience, after all, I'm only half Negro, his words. The half Negro jibe referred to the fact that Frederick's father had been a, a, white, a white man on Maryland's eastern shore. Not great. He said, I paid for this seat. I am taking it. And he took it off that train. Anyway, it's a great story, American history, when done right. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I am Seth Leapson, and class is dismissed.